Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, surveying the damage. But we know that it's not just right now that they need help. It'll be for weeks and months and even years to come. And uh, we will be there for each other. The Prime Minister heads to the Maritimes to tour the areas devastated by Fiona. Coming up, we'll get the latest from both Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, provinces where tens of thousands of people are still dealing with the aftermath of the storm. Also... The Liberals have now been in power for seven years and they have not hit a single solitary emissions reduction target. The Conservative leader continues to hammer the Trudeau Liberals, demanding they kill a planned increase to the carbon tax. So coming up, we'll speak to a panel of MPs about the merits and the costs of taxing pollution. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Well, we begin tonight in the Maritimes where the Prime Minister has been touring, taking in firsthand the damage that was left behind by post-tropical storm Fiona. Justin Trudeau's itinerary, including stops today in Stanley Bridge, PEI and Sydney, Nova Scotia. Let's take a listen now to the Prime Minister during one of those stops. The federal government um, is here as a partner where we were uh, working already in advance of the storm to prepare for the worst and um, yeah, the worst happened but at the same time there are tremendous stories of, of resilience, of uh, rebuilding uh, and there's a lot of work to do over the coming weeks uh, and months and hopefully not years but if it takes uh, that long we will continue to be there. The Prime Minister from earlier today as he visited Prince Edward Island. Now, Sean Casey is the Liberal Member of Parliament for Charlottetown. He joins us right now. Mr. Casey, good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for your interest. Now, your Liberal colleague, uh, Minister Goody Hutchings, uh, she probably said it best yesterday when she was speaking with us because she said that however shocking the photos are, they do not completely capture really the magnitude of destruction. How would you describe what you have seen on the island in the wake of Fiona? I don't think there's a single street in Charlottetown that does not have a fallen tree or multiple fallen trees or snapped off or down power lines. So that'll give you a hint of the degree. Um, my own car was crushed in the driveway. I know of one home that was destroyed. There have been roofs blown off. Um, so any one of these things in isolation wouldn't be unusual, but when it happens on every single street, uh, that'll give you a sense of the magnitude. There are many streets, uh, really, until today, were completely impassable. Absolutely, and really just incredible to see the, the images, not only of the destruction on city streets, but also seeing boats uh, washed up on shore. You, you hear of tens of thousands of people still without electricity. But, you know, this is not the first time uh, islanders have had to weather a storm, but it seems to be the most <laughs> powerful. Uh, can you call to mind any storm that caused as much damage as Fiona? No, um, and uh, nor can uh, many of the, the people I talk to that are older than me. Um, so, no, this is, uh, this is one for the ages. We, we've had some pretty wicked winter storms 
Um, but the the closest thing to this, uh, probably Dorian and Juan in that order. Um, but it was nowhere near what uh, what we've experienced here. And you made a fair point, Michael. I, I'm, I'm talking to you about the city of Charlottetown because that's where I live and that's what I can attest to um, from an eyewitness perspective. Um, I haven't really ventured outside the city except on a hunt for propane, um, but I do understand that uh, some potato warehouses have been beaten up. There's been some major damage in terms of coastal erosion uh, because of the storm surge. Um, so yes, it's uh, I, I come at it from an urban perspective, but all of PEI has been whacked pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Now the Prime Minister, of course, as you know, uh, went to the province today. He took in some of the damage. Any word on his impressions, uh, his thoughts at seeing the level of destruction? I spoke with him briefly as he was getting on the plane, and uh, he was he was clearly moved. Um, he was absolutely empathetic. He impressed upon me that if there is anything that uh, that I felt in my travels that uh, uh, that the federal government could be doing in addition to what has already been announced, uh, that he was all ears. So um, that was that was certainly the the impression that uh, that I got from talking to him. I wasn't with him on the wharf. I was chairing a health committee meeting. Um, but uh, certainly, I, I, I did see him before he got on the plane, and uh, it, uh, it 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 clearly had an impact. That does raise an issue about what is the greatest need right now uh, with people uh, in your province. What do you think that need is? What do you think your role might be in facilitating meeting that need? The single biggest need uh, in the province right now is the restoration of power. So. 62,000 customers without power as of today. I'm pleased to say that that is a decrease from what it was a couple of days ago. Um, so that's what we need. But I'm also very pleased to say that the the federal government has come to uh, the aid of the province as a result of a request from Premier King for um, for military assistance. Uh, that's what they're here to do is to clear the debris to free up the power lines. Uh, I can also tell you that on my walk to the office today, I went by two utility trucks, one with a Maine license plate and one with an Indiana license plate. Now, we normally only see those license plates in the summertime at the golf courses and the beaches, uh, but they were here doing their part. So it does appear that all hands are on deck. The numbers keep going down every day. Uh, my place still doesn't have power, but my office does. Um, and the vast, uh, the vast majority of uh, customers here still don't have power. That's the single biggest thing. And if I could add one more, mm-hmm. that would be, let's look at, so the federal government has announced a matching of donations to the Red Cross. And as of today, the, the total amount in that fund stands at $11.2 million. That's uh, the combination of the federal matching and the private donations. So what can people do? Donate to the Red Cross if they can. Call the Red Cross for help if they need it. And stay out of the way of the people that are looking to clear the debris to restore power. Sean Casey, really good to speak with you. Thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Let's shift our focus now to Nova Scotia. John Lohr is the minister responsible for the province's emergency management office. Uh, Minister Lohr, thank you for joining us today. 
it's great to be on the show, Michael, and thank you for your interest uh, in what's happening. Absolutely. You know, it's it's hard to turn your eyes away from what has been happening, but you really have had this first-hand look. You've been uh, touring with the Premier, looking and seeing the areas that were hardest hit by Fiona. Can you tell us a bit about that experience, what you saw, what has stood out for you? Well, Michael, the, I've been in different parts of the province, and the, um, the severity of the storm is really uh, astounding. It's uh, across uh, a broad swath of Nova Scotia. There's been damage, and up in Glace Bay, certainly, uh, there's just been a lot of damage up there. We, one of the things that stood out for me was how sometimes a tree would fall in the only place it could fall and not hit something important, and other times there would be a tree fall, and the only thing to hit, it hit. So there's some sort of randomness to this storm. One property is devastated. The property right next to it is okay. That's That stood out for me. Uh, I was in Anaganish yesterday, and the severity of the storm in Anaganish was uh, also surprising, and I heard from a number of my colleagues last night. So across Cumberland, Colchester, Pictou, and Anaganish counties, it wasn't as uh, severe in a localized way like Glace Bay, but actually there's a tremendous amount of damage across those counties, and we know it's going to take a lot of work to clear the trees. There's places, there's hundreds of trees across power lines and uh, you know there's uh, multiple poles knocked over and even here where I am in Port Williams locally the power's back on for me now but there were a number of poles knocked over here too so it, it's uh, a storm that covered hundreds and hundreds of miles of damage so but yet it was somewhat random I mean there were areas homes really hurt and areas really damaged but right ne nearby no damage so some of it's hard to, hard to understand. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the province's greatest need right now? Just listening off to, to, to what you just said, it seems that res restoration of power is certainly among the top priorities. Well, I would say restoration of power is the top priority, and particularly to critical pieces of infrastructure. And uh, I mean, we're learning that uh, fuel stations are pretty important, like as people are running out of fuel and there's, uh, you know, gas stations have uh, no power or maybe they haven't had a gas delivery. That's important. Uh, and uh, all of the other things that you can imagine are important right now. We And there's, there's you know, some of our infrastructures running on generators, but getting power to them, getting power to our cell phone towers, that's all extraordinarily important right now. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, as you know, Ottawa has deployed Canadian forces to help with efforts on the ground. Uh, can you talk to us about what they are doing, what they will be doing as they arrive and uh, get underway in Nova Scotia? So the Canadian forces, we're really extremely grateful for the Canadian forces that uh, have already come. We, we had Canadian forces on the ground as early as Sunday morning, a preliminary team to assess the damage and scout it out. Obviously, tree removal is the number one thing they'll be doing for us. And, uh, but we really, we're, we're learning that it, it needs to be a much, much broader uh, than just in Cape Breton. It needs to be across those four counties I mentioned as well. So as as uh, late, late as recently as last night, I received a commitment from the uh, the minister, Bill Blair, that there'll be more Canadian forces coming. We need more forces to come here. Mm -hmm. More forces to come. Is that what you hope in part the prime minister takes away from his visit to Nova Scotia today? Well, we've we've already received that commitment from Bill Blair, and I, I hope the Prime Minister reiterates that, I, and I'm sure that he will, and I appreciate him coming to visit. 
Now, Ottawa says it will help cover costs for people affected by the storm. Your own government is also promising uh, aid to people who are affected. What do you say to Nova Scotians right now who are left with this task of having to rebuild, to clean up in the aftermath? So, I mean, we recognize how hard this is on people, very much so. And I know the Premier wants to, to help people get back to rights. And we've announced an unprecedented suite of uh, aid for uh, post-storm aid. Uh, never uh, never before uh, has there been this broad, uh, broad an announcement. Uh, there's the DFA program, the Disaster Financial Assistance Program, which is kind of expected after storm. And the applications for that are online right now and uh, we recognize many people don't have the internet so they're also available in MLA offices and in Access Nova Scotia and uh, we've we've sent it to the municipalities too so we want people to apply for that that's for uninsured loss but we've also announced a number of other aid aid pieces for people and uh, some of that uh, is not is not we're working very hard we have a team working to get the applications for those programs which we've announced will be up in a day or two. We're working hard on that. So uh, we're working hard, uh, Michael, to help people through this. And we recognize the hardship this has on many, many Nova Scotians. Yeah, you know, you look at the photos and they really are heartbreaking. They're, they're mind boggling. Is there any way of knowing, and I have to ask for a quick answer on this, I apologize, but is there any way of knowing how long this process will be to get people back up and running and back to, to a sense of normality? Um, yeah, no, Michael, I, I, I can't say. I really don't know the answer to that. It will take uh, weeks, maybe months for some people to get back up to normal. If you see some of the infrastructure that's been damaged of, of homes and farms, it's going to take time to get that fixed. And certainly, we, we hope that uh, people will have power sooner rather than later. And I, I do want to give a shout out to Nova Scotia Power and all the, we have a number of uh, crews from uh, Maine, New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, and we just really appreciate all those uh, linemen that are coming and line, people that are coming to work here to help us right now. And they're doing an amazing job. We had 50,000 people re receive or 50,000 points or get their power back uh, yesterday. And uh, But we know that as we go forward, it'll take each, uh, you know, there's uh, some of the places they're going to have to restore power to. It becomes more difficult. There's just, they're more remote. There's more trees down. So. It'll take time. Mm -hmm. Well, Minister, we appreciate how busy these last few days have been for you. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Again, thank you for your interest. And uh, for the, I know Canadians are watching this within, uh, you know, I know they're, they, we have their sympathy. We get that message and we appreciate that very much. Absolutely. Minister John Lohr. The Liberals said that this carbon tax would never go above $50 a ton. That, it was, that was it. 50 and we're done. 50 a ton and we're done, they said, right? And that was before the election. And surprise, after the election, they said that the tax would have to be tripled. They said it was so ineffective that we needed to make it three times the size in order to do the job. And that's just what we know about. If they're going to triple the tax after just one broken election promise, imagine if they were, God forbid, given another mandate. What surprise would we hear the next day?
And that was Pierre Poliev from earlier today. Now, it was opposition day in the House, and it was the Conservatives' turn to choose the topic of debate, which, as you heard, was about the carbon tax. Poliev continuing his call for the Trudeau Liberals to kill scheduled hikes to the carbon tax in the new year. And to discuss the matter, we are now joined by Rachel Bendayan. Ms. Bendayan is the Liberal MP for the riding of Outremont, Quebec. She is also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Tourism and an Associate Minister of Finance. Michael Barrett is the Conservative MP for Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands and Rideau Lakes in Ontario. And for the NDP House Leader, Peter Julian, who is also the Member of Parliament for New Westminster Burnaby in British Columbia. Hello to the three of you. Hi, Michael. Good to Hello. be here. So, uh, Mr. Barrett, I'm going to get you to start us off here because it is your party that chose the carbon tax to be debated on this opposition day. What is at issue for your party? What would you like to happen here? Look, this is all about affordability for Canadians. It's a time when uh, we're seeing uh, record inflation that's hammering Canadians, 10% year-over-year food inflation, 4 in 10 Canadians making really tough choices about what they're able to afford to feed their families every month, right on the cusp of uh, the season where everyone turns their furnaces on at home, and they're not able to make ends meet before they start getting those home heating bills in one of the world's coldest climates. So uh, on the uh, on taking a look at all of that, we're on the verge of um, taxes going up with a paycheck tax in January. And we've heard, of course, from the government that they're going to triple the carbon tax, which on home heating, on uh, on you know fueling up your vehicle, but also um, raising the price of everything from farm to table. Um, this this is not the time to be raising taxes on Canadians. Uh, Ms. Bendayan, how do you respond to that? Because you add to what we heard from Mr. Barrett uh, the 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 report from the parliamentary budget officer back in March, which basically said that yes, rebates will be coming to lower income Canadians, but for those who are more middle class, who are uh, perhaps uh, receiving a higher income, at the end of the day, they'll actually be, be paying more with every monthly bill. Well, thanks, Michael. And, you know, I must say it didn't come as a huge surprise for the Conservatives to use their first opposition day motion to attack, you know, climate policy while we're facing a climate emergency. But it is disappointing that they're trying to spin it as somehow an affordability measure when it's absolutely not. The, the parliamentary budget officer, the PBO, um, that you just referenced, uh, confirmed that eight out of 10 Canadian families actually receive more money back in our climate credit than they do pay. Every single penny of the, the price on pollution that is collected goes back to the jurisdiction um, that it was taken from. Uh, this is absolutely climate policy in action that actually works. You know, economists have said that a price on pollution is the most effective way to attack climate change. We are less than 48 hours since Hurricane Fiona touched down. I think Canadians are smart. They realize that. Um, Failing to do anything on uh, on climate is going to cost us much, much more in the medium and long term. Uh, one other thing that I, I, I would just I would just say is that it's so unfortunate that that my colleague, Mr. Barrett, who's sitting next to me, has called our price on pollution a Ponzi scheme. I mean, it is absolutely irresponsible and, and pretty rich coming from the Conservative Party that's been promoting cryptocurrency as a way to opt out of inflation. Mr. Julian, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, though, because, you know, uh, 
I understand what the the point that Ms. Bendine is making here, but for for the vast majority of Canadians, what they see is not so much the carbon tax, but how they have to find an extra dollar to pay for gas, to fill their car, to go to work. How do you justify uh, an increase in carbon tax when so many Canadians are already struggling with the cost of living right now? Well, well first off, uh, people are struggling with the cost of living. That's absolutely true. That's why Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have pushed the Liberals to actually put in, in, in place legislation that provides for dental care, provides for a rental supplement uh, that'll help nearly 2 million Canadians. And the Conservatives yesterday said that they were going to basically rip up the bill, which is completely irresponsible. So I question the sincerity of the Conservatives when it comes to affordability, that they would do that at a time when Canadian families need more supports is is pretty hypocritical. But those are, say, if you I, allow me, I'm sorry, and, Mr. Julian, if you allow me, those those are targeted benefits, though. It does not necessarily benefit a, a middle-class family that is still, as well, struggling to find the dollar to pay for the cost of living. It will help almost 2 million Canadians. Uh, the GST bill will help about 12 million Canadians. Uh, a lot of Canadians that are helped by what the NDP and Jagmeet Singh have pushed the government to do. Now, that being said, when we talk about putting a price on pollution, it, it is one tool among many. And I do know that the Liberals, have, have, on the one hand, have put a price on pollution, which I, I think is a good thing, but on the other hand, are continuing to give massive subsidies to the oil and gas executives. And, and this is one of the big problems with inflation. We're seeing greedflation, as so many people have referenced. Uh, food, food prices that are through the roof as food, food companies, grocery companies have record profits and oil and gas companies have been the same jacking up prices and we actually need a federal government and that's not going to be liberal or conservative it takes action against that type of, of profiteering at a time when so many canadians are struggling now mr barrett if not a carbon tax because beyond the cost of living there is the environmental issue of course that's what the carbon tax is meant to address how would you address climate change well, we're not going to tax Canadians like the uh, Liberals would do. They're not meeting the targets that they've set with their tax, and that's why they need to triple it, because it's the, they say it's not effective enough. So they're going to punish Canadians with higher taxes for their failures, when they could employ many technologies that would affect a... Uh, in, a, in a great way, have, a, have a, a reduction on global and domestic greenhouse gas emissions. A small modular reactors are one. We also have um, LNG is a, an abundant resource that we have in this country. Um, we had all kinds of projects that were uh, approved under the last Conservative government that none of them have come to pass under the Liberal government. And we, we've seen the effect of having countries who rely on dictatorships uh, for their energy. We see that with Russia cutting off gas to our allies in Europe. Quickly, we Mr. Barrett. And, and we see that with, you know, a Canadian, uh, Canadian fuel. We're, we're importing dirty dictator oil instead of, you know, using a clean Canadian energy. And Ms. Bendayan, how do you respond to that? Why not technological advances rather than a carbon tax? I say let's do both, and that is exactly what our government is doing. We are uh, we are moving forward on nuclear. We are moving forward in, in innovative and new ways. And putting a price on pollution actually spurs innovation. Economists are unanimous on that point, and that's why it's important to keep the price on pollution, not to scrap it like the Conservatives would have us do, and also keep our climate rebate. It's putting over $600 in the pockets of a family of four in Ontario, over $950 in Alberta. This is real money that the Conservatives are going to take away from Canadians by scrapping the price on pollution. Uh, Mr. Julian, last word to you, less than a minute here. Is there any way to make a carbon tax easier on the average Canadian? 
Uh, yes, and that's why the NDP has pushed for these other supports to make sure that uh, we, we are supporting Canadian families at such a critical time. The NDP has been the only party in the House uh, really pushing this issue of support for regular families. But I, I will say this, last summer, just over a year ago, over 600 people in my region died from the climate change linked uh, heat dome. We saw BC cut off from the rest of the country because of the atmospheric river that hit in the fall now with Hurricane Fiona. People died in Atlantic Canada. Both the Conservatives and the Liberals have not taken climate change seriously, and we need to have a government that will make sure that we are transitioning through a just transition strategy to the clean energy economy, that it really has to be the, the path for the future for Canada and for the planet. Okay, Ms. Bendai and Mr. Baird, I know you want to answer to that, but unfortunately we're out of time right now. But our thanks to the three of you. No doubt we will pick up the conversation again later in the season, but for now, thank you to the three of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Mr. Sullivan, uh, you come to Parliament Hill at a time when our leaders are debating housing affordability. What do you make of that debate? Does that give you encouragement that the issues you're bringing to politicians is currently top of mind? Yeah, and this is this is what's fantastic about the timing right now. And never in my career of 20 plus years in affordable housing have I seen it reach to the top of the agenda on, on Parliament Hill the way it has. So we've brought together affordable housing experts from across the country, over 50 folks, to come and talk to members of parliament about what's on their mind too, right? Which is that more and more people across Canada are struggling and struggling to find a home and keep a home that they can afford. Mm -hmm. uh, get a home, keep a home. But I, I, I suspect that there's a difference here that you're talking about between creating housing stock that people can actually afford and buy uh, versus the other piece of this, which is the basic need of getting safe and secure homes for people who really are just making ends meet. Yeah, but look, you know, there's there's one housing market, whether you're talking about uh, expensive market priced homes for sale or whether you're talking about affordable and below market rental housing. And what happens on one end of the spectrum affects the other as well. The new census data that was just released last week showing that there's been a drop for the first time in decades in the rate of affordable or sorry, in the rate of ownership of housing in Canada, particularly among folks 35 years and under. What does that mean? It means more folks are staying in the rental market, putting more pressure on rents driving up the cost of housing for people for whom that is their only option left. Mm -hmm. Now, the government did uh, release a, what, a $10 billion housing strategy five years ago. How would you assess that strategy? Where has it gone right? Where are the shortfalls still, do you think? Yeah, the national housing strategy, you say, is, is, is five years old now. And there are some cracks, there are some gaps. And there are households, there are folks who are falling into those cracks. And we're here to talk to folks about filling in those gaps. And one of the biggest gaps, one of the missing pieces of the national housing strategy is the lack of a specific urban, rural, and northern indigenous housing strategy. And this is where some of the greatest need is. Housing outcomes for indigenous renters are much worse than for renters in general. One out of every four renter from an Aboriginal community is in core housing need. There's other gaps in the national housing strategy. It ignores the possibility of uh, nonprofit acquisition of existing rental properties. These are gaps that need to be filled. We're happy that government is listening to us. We're happy that they're welcoming us to the table and working with them to make these improvements. Mm -hmm. So uh, talk to us a bit more about that. What exactly can politically, political leaders do to fill in the gaps that you're addressing here? Yeah, and this is, this is about uh, filling those gaps by addressing what has changed since 2017. You know, we're talking about a national housing strategy that was created at a time of historically low inflation, of stable prices. 
all of that has shifted. The response to the private sector rental market has shifted. The response in the nonprofit sector, where CHRA represents members, has shifted. Government needs to shift as well. Mm -hmm. You know, housing is such a basic need. Uh, can you talk to us, though, about what secure housing, or from perhaps the other vantage point, housing and security, what kind of uh, future do those kind of policies create? Mm -hmm. And and this is this is the key, and this is why we've created a blueprint. And every every good home starts with a blueprint plan. We've created a blueprint for the government of Canada to address those needs because housing is at that foundation, and the right to housing, which is now recognized in legislation, is that core and an access point for all of the other rights and 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 comforts that folks enjoy. It has to start with housing. Mm -hmm. So, what is your hope coming out of today's meetings? My hope, and we're already seeing it from the round of meetings we had with, with dozens of members of parliament this morning, is we're seeing a positive response. And we're seeing a positive response from all parties in, in the House of Commons. And our hope is that that dialogue continues. Our experts are here, again, from across the country to, to work with members of parliament, to work with staff, to work with Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation to fill those gaps, because we have to. It is urgent. The housing crisis has, has touched all of us, our family members, our neighbors, and we cannot delay. Ray Sullivan, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Thank you, Michael. And that is today's program. I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you so much for joining us. And as we end this show, a few more images of the Prime Minister as he toured parts of the Maritimes today, hard hit by post-tropical storm Fiona. We'll have more for you tomorrow right here on Primetime Politics.